So the talk today is called Elements of a Networked Urbanism, and it basically is in the nature of a diagnosis and a manifesto. It's an attempt to figure out uh, where we're headed in these large containers for human vitality and activity that we call cities. Um, what technical conditions are coming down the pike that might begin to etch away at the arrangements and the agreements that have conditioned urban space for, for 5,000 years or so now. Um, I'm not a techno-determinist, so it's not about, you know, these technologies are going to change things. It's about what new technological affordances and conditions and possibilities are beginning to open up that people in cities are going to take hold of and make use of, and together these things are going to transform urban life. Um, but it's also a manifesto for how to do those things right. Uh, and I make no bones about the fact that um, I'm a fairly opinionated guy, as some of you know. And uh, this conversation will definitely reflect my prejudices and beliefs about the things that should and should not happen. Uh, who am I? Since I'm imagining that a lot of you have no idea who I am. Uh, I come from a user experience background. Uh, I spent many, many years between, well, not that many years, I guess. It just seemed like a long time. Uh, between 1999 and around 2002 doing web development. And uh, that was primarily of interest and importance in this context because it marinated me in what happens when human beings and reasonably high technology artifacts encounter one another. And the results are not pretty. Uh, I've spent a lot of time dealing with um, people's frustration and sense of their own incompetence when confronted with technology. And I can guarantee you that these are not stupid people. These are ordinary, everyday people that we saw interacting with websites. I spent years developing these things, enterprise-scale websites. And what we would see often is that human beings encountered with these things um, when they can't figure out how to use them, they, they don't blame the designers, they don't blame the developers, they blame themselves. They say, why am I so stupid? Why can't I figure this out? And that, as a, as a designer, that's not anything I ever want on my conscience. And that's primarily what I brought with me out of user experience. Um, and after a couple of years of doing that, I, I got bored silly. Um, I really, you know, after you've built 40 or 50 websites, there's really no magic in it anymore, or at least there wasn't for me. And I began asking all of the smartest people around me, really, this web stuff is fine, but, but what comes next? You know, we're talking about the future here today, so really, what is the future? And this was Japan, this was, 19, uh, this was 2002, so you can imagine that a lot of the answers I got were about mobile. Um, but I was a North American, and in 2002, in North America, mobile wasn't really part of our everyday consciousness. It wasn't really that important to me. Um, and so when people gave me answers that were about, yeah, mobile is the future, that really wasn't so engaging to me, and I didn't really buy it. Um, I, there had to be something deeper. There had to be something more than that. And a very smart woman I know by the name of Anne Galloway said, you know, there's this thing called ubiquitous computing that you ought to check out. And as a matter of fact, there's a conference next week in Sweden, and maybe your bosses will pay for you to go to it. And in fact, they did, and in fact, I did go, and what I discovered was something that looked like, and in a lot of ways still looks like, the future. The idea of ubiquitous computing. The idea that um, this container for information processing is just a transitional phase. You know, we've made the transition from mainframes to mini-computers, from mini-computers to personal computers. And as the processing power that is invested in each one of these devices uh, begins to, to get smaller, more powerful, more robust, um, it, it spreads out into the world. We go from, like, you know, 
mainframes in the world were numbered in maybe the hundreds, you know, obviously to millions, tens of millions of personal computers. By the time you make the transition to ubiquitous computing, we're talking about many hundreds of information processing devices dedicated to each one of us. So billions of these things in the world, tens of billions of these things in the world, and more than that. Um, and I wrote a book about that, and it was called Everywhere, and, and uh, thanks for alluding to it. And, uh, and so I've been interested in that in a couple of years, but, but that was really an excuse for me to talk about what I've really been interested in my entire life, which is architecture and cities. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today, networked urbanism. Um, what happens to the conditions of urban life when ubiquitous computing arrives on the scene? What, what, how can we reach into that, that technological manifold? How can we use it to improve the conditions of cities and to improve the, the lives that we have there? And I really want to make sure that we do this. I really want to probe and question and challenge the idea of networked urbanism because there's a place in, in South Korea. It's a place called Nusongdo. It's a city that's been built from the ground up with intense corporate and governmental support to have what we would think of as a sort of orthodox vision of ubiquitous computing in everyday life wired into the city from the ground up. Um, and I mean to push back against visions like that. I mean very strongly to probe and question. Um, this is a place where everything you do in the course of the day will be captured by a network of sensors, will be represented on a network, um, will have its outputs in a variety of other ways. So, for example, you know, a trash can might have RFID sensors in it. And, uh, you know, every can of soda and beer that's sold in the city of New Songdo might, have, might be RFID tagged. And you, of course, would have uh, some kind of account representation. So if you're walking down the street and you're done with your soda can and you throw it in the trash bin, you know, the system recognizes this act and, uh, you know, credits the, the five-cent uh, recovery fee for the can back to your account. And meanwhile, uh, you know, the city's trash infrastructure is notified that, uh, you know, a, an aluminum can has joined the trash flow. And, and it's this very aggressive, very uh, complete vision of what information processing looks like in everyday life and, and, and how everyday life can be founded on that. And there's neat things about that vision. I mean, it, it has... Um, obvious implications for sustainability. It has obvious implications for your empowerment um, and, and for bringing knowledge to you as you move through space and through opening up choice in the city. But it also has these other sort of weird implications, uh, obviously for privacy and for, for, um, for the way in which we construct our, our presentation of self and for the psyche. So I, I mean very much to put that question mark on this discussion. And again, I'm not a techno-determinist. Technologists are really fond of this quote. Uh, this is from actually The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. And uh, it's, it's this poor, uh, desperate priest who realizes this will kill that. You know, the printing press will kill the church. Um, and and why, do, why do we love this sentence so much? Why do we love this quote so much? It's, it's the, there's something in that, the drama of this, you know, killing that. Um, this is the techno-determinist creed. This is the idea that you, you, know, you drop a new technology into a context and it autonomously changes things. And I don't think things work that way. None of the things that we're going to be talking about today, um, I imagine happening all in one city, all at one time. Um, all of the, the 14 or 15 transitions that we're going to be talking about today, um, they're layers. Right? They're things that settle over cities and over urban conditions differentially, differentially in time, differentially by place. Uh, cities are palimpsests. They're, they're 
layered representations of experience over time. And I think that each city, you know, whether it's a city in the UK, whether it's a city in North America, whether it's a city in Asia, um, each human population is going to uh, adapt and embrace to these technologies in different ways. And so we'll see different effects. Nevertheless, I think there are some observable continuities in the sorts of technological effects that we're going to be seeing, um, prodded by these two facts. These are factoids that I think sort of begin to describe the parameters of the space that we're going to be operating in. The first is that humanity is irretrievably becoming urban. Uh, this is from the UN's most recent population development uh, statistics at the end of 2007. And they said by the end of 2008, for the first time in human history, more than 50% of the human population of the planet lived in large cities. Um, this is epochal. This is huge. This means that from now on, when you're, when you're considering anything that affects humanity or the human condition in any meaningful way, you're talking about an urban context. You're talking about the problems and the potentials of large, dense networks of human settlement. Um, that is unbelievable. It really is. I mean, I, I can't... Um, I obviously can't convey the force of what this means to me personally. This is really a fascinating thing to me. And, and lest we think of the cities in this equation as you know London or Paris or Tokyo or Seoul or New York, they're not. What we're talking about here is more like um, the favelas, the slums, the, the, the uh, informal encampments. I mean, humanity in, in cities is becoming... Um, it's almost a, a post-urban condition. These are complexes of, of incredible density, incredible complexity, and they don't really respond to the conditions of cities as we recognize them. And this is where people live now. So when you imagine layering ubiquitous computing over the city, I'm going to ask you not to imagine it primarily being layered over a neat grid-like orderly collection of streets and buildings and, and businesses and infrastructure and people. I'm going to ask you to imagine that technology primarily layered over informal, unplanned, um, self-organizing settlements of the most extreme disorder, occasionally squalor, and um, vitality as well. That's the city that I want you to have in mind as we go through the rest of this conversation. There's also this bracketing our discussion today. Um, this is from the, the technology research company Gartner. And it's kind of a, a weirdly worded Suggestion, but their, their prediction is that by the end of 2012, networked sensors, embedded sensors, will account for 20% of non-video internet traffic. Now, I don't know, you know what percentage they see as being video traffic, so the statistic is almost meaningless. It it's, gives them a lot of room to fudge and say, well, we were kind of right. Um, and I don't know what that's all about. I don't know exactly why they, they, uh, they present this piece of information in quite this way. But... The important fact here is that um, a, a reasonably credible institution with access to, to uh, a large amount of information and a lot, having a lot of influence in the world is willing to stake themselves to the bet that a very significant percentage of everything, all the bits traveling over the Internet from now on, not primarily going to be there by dint of human beings communicating with other human beings, not primarily going to be there by dint of um, me sending an email or me um, you know, accessing a website or anything like that. It's going to be bits that were put there by network sensors pulling up information about you know, street use, um, facial pattern recognition, air quality. Um, sensors embedded in places 
transmitting information on an extremely wide variety of channels about the physical world. When you take these two conditions together, I think you begin to see some very, very interesting, slow at first, but increasingly fast-paced, some profound shifts in the way that people can organize themselves in place. And this is the very first one that I see. Um, we're familiar with, with Internet Protocol, IP, and, and the current version of Internet Protocol that we use, IPv4, the, the salient quality of it is that we're running out of space in it. Uh, the address space is beginning to run out around the edges. Can we have the, the house lights down a little bit, the top lights up there? That would be great. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, so for years, you know, we've been aware of this problem, and what's been proposed as a response to it is IPv6, IPv6 with a 128-bit address space which uh, gives you enough addressability to take every seat in this room and make it a node of the Internet, more than every seat of this room, to take every fiber woven into every seat on this room, and if you wanted to, give it its own Internet node and identity. And more than that, every you know, grain of sand on the beach down there on the strand here, to give that its own Internet address and identity. 128-bit address space is, uh, you know, I forget the exact number, but it is huge. You can literally turn every button on every shirt, every component of every car, every meter of every sidewalk into its own Internet node. And when you can do that, you can do something really interesting with cities. You can take urban components, streets, sidewalks, buildings, infrastructure, windows, and you can make them, well, if they're addressable... They're queryable. And if they're queryable, they might even be scriptable. You can turn cities from collections of objects into assemblages of resources. You have to begin thinking about urban environments as collections of addressable, queryable, scriptable networked resources, potentially and ideally with open APIs, which allows you to reach into them, gather data off of them, figure out what state they're in, maybe even tell them what state they need to be in next. And when you can do this, this changes everything. This one transition drives almost everything else that we're going to be talking about today. So it's really a new set of eyes. Uh, I've started, as I move through the world, as I move through the cities that I come into, into contact with, I've started to read them differently. I, I definitely read them on the human level and on the experiential level and on the perceptual level. But I also have begun to read them as, what can you do? What kinds of information might you derive from this space? And what might you be able to do with that information? What might I be able to do if I could see this place as somehow dynamic and open-ended, extensible in time and space as a networked resource? And I think if you have that, it begins to drive this. This is really interesting. The, uh, the new media theorist Lev Manovich um, once said that the, the main effect of a computer revolution is to turn everything that is now a constant into a variable. And he was talking about one particular building um, that was designed digitally so that everything that had been static and rectilinear uh, and, and expressed in Cartesian coordinates um, now became kind of a vector field. Uh, it became more of a fluid condition. Uh, the spaces wrapped around uh, themselves in ways that would only really be possible if you had extremely um, computationally intensive processes that were devoted to design and fabrication. But the comment is more generally true than I think he understood, um, or at least would have been willing to stake himself to then. The comment is much more generally true of everything that we're talking about, because when you have this networked environment, 
Um, nothing need be static anymore. Nothing need be a constant anymore. You can take the things about you and turn them into variables. Uh, and you can begin to imagine a world of dynamic response. You can begin to imagine a world in which conditions change over time in response to other conditions elsewhere in the network, whether those are local or distant conditions unknown. But you can begin to take, for example, a building membrane and have it change its permeability in response to the CO2 concentration in the room. You can begin to have streets that change direction in response to traffic conditions halfway across town. You can take the built environment as a whole and model it as a variable, dynamic, open-ended quantity. That's fascinating to me. And I think that that begins to actually pretty profoundly change the meaning of place. Because if there's one thing that we know about place, um, it's that its nature as a constant, as something that you can come back to time and time again, helps us orient ourselves, helps us establish ourselves, and ultimately... Um, at least if you read Heidegger, uh, helps us inhabit it, helps us develop a relationship over time with it that's rich and meaningful and resonant. So, so you get the upside of being able to um, turn the environment to this dynamic condition, but you also get potentially the loss of a sense of place because things are going to be up in the air. They're going to be changing around us. Something else happens that's really interesting. Uh, life uh, generates information by its very nature. Our activities in the cities have always generated information. Now, when things are networked resources and are available on the network, you get this transition from latent to explicit. How does that affect us in everyday life? One of the best examples I can think of is a really amazing uh, news service in the United States that's just thankfully been picked up and hopefully had its life extended a little bit. It's a service called Every Block. Um, and one of the things that every block does is it collects things like police reports, traffic reports, uh, utility reports, and, uh, and local news, local information, and um, most interestingly for my purposes, uh, health certifications, health inspections of restaurants. And it puts those up all online and it plots them out over a map of the city. And, you know, if, you, if you're a reasonably savvy consumer of urban place, you know that this information has always been generated, right? You're aware of the fact that when you walk down the street, you're in a police precinct, and that police precinct has generated information about the crimes that have taken place there. And you're walking past businesses that have each been raided and have each, um, you know, received some kind of certification from the municipality. And, and there are facts and regulations and opinions that condition everything that you're encountering. But all of that stuff has been latent. It's been hard to get at. What a service like Every Block does is draws that stuff in through its APIs and rolls it all up into a really, really nice map that makes everything explicit. It puts all of those facts there for you as a dot on the map. And then you can look at your local favorite curry house and you can see that it's got 79 health inspection violations, including, you know, rat feces out on the counters and, you know, the staff not wearing hairnets and stuff like that. And maybe you don't eat there anymore, right? You can see that um, this police precinct has more street crime than that precinct. And maybe you don't choose to live there. Or if you have no choice on where to live, maybe you order and structure your life differently. Um, the information that is revealed through these networks has the quantity, uh, the quality of being actionable. It, it changes the way that we make decisions. It informs and guides our decisions about where to go next, what to do next, how to live, how to interact with the spaces around us. It makes things painfully explicit. And when we take uh, 
um, all of that information in, uh, it can be, again, incredibly empowering and at the same time kind of uncomfortable. At the same time, you don't necessarily want to know that about your favorite restaurant, your favorite nightclub. You don't necessarily want to be aware of all of the murders that have been committed on this block of, of street in the last two years. These things are facts of our existence that maybe sometimes it's better to live in an agreed sense of deniability about. Maybe it's better to live in kind of a fog about. At least, I think a lot of people would choose to. Nevertheless, they're now becoming explicit and will be persistent over time. Ah! I have my slides out of order. Sorry. We're moving from latent to explicit. What this gives us is also the ability to move from what I call browse urbanism to search urbanism. And this, again, is um, something that sounds kind of abstract, but is actually really concrete and really interesting. It means that when everything has a tag associated with it and everything has data, everything is available on network, you reach into the city and you, instead of encountering things at random by happenstance, one by one as you pass by them, you encounter them deliberately. You encounter them by choice. You reach into the urban manifold and you ask the city for what you want, for some collection of circumstances that corresponds to your desires, your needs, and your ability to make use of them. So when you are walking through a district that is extremely popular on a Sunday morning and you're looking for brunch and every single place that you walk through has a line outside that's 45 minutes long, you can begin to structure queries such as, Give me a restaurant that's open right now, that's within walking distance, that has the kind of food that I want at a price that I'm willing to spend, that doesn't actually have a line outside, if there is any such thing. If there is any such thing. Um, extend that logic to every conceivable set of circumstances. Bring this to me. You can search the space of the city the same way we can now search the space of the web. You can begin to bring things towards you. You can begin to function as an attractor for new, new kinds of circumstances. Um, this has important consequences for the construction of urban savoir faire. Uh, importantly, what it's meant to be an enlightened and a knowledgeable user of a city historically has meant knowing about specialist services, knowing things that other people don't, having the secret knowledge, the insider knowledge, knowing where you can get your shirts pressed for less than anybody else and still have a, you know, a great deal done on them. Um, you know, knowing where that restaurant is, knowing where that record club is, knowing where the scene is happening. When you have search urbanism, that's radically democratized. And it's hard to argue that that's, in any, you know, that that's anything but a good thing. It means that specialist knowledge per se uh, is spread out in, in a broad swath over, over the entire population. It does mean that you're going to have to work a little bit harder to, to become a maven of place, to become anything like an expert, a local character. Uh, it begins to etch away at our understandings of what it means to be a truly power user of cities. And, you know, again, good and bad. Like everything I'm talking about today, excuse me, like everything I'm talking about today, uh, you, you know, you begin to sense a theme, right? You begin to sense a trend, a trend of the potential for incredible empowerment at the price of losing something that we've brought with us throughout 5,000 years of urban experience that may have been kind of neat and uh, that I wouldn't necessarily want to let go of too quickly. But that's the deal we're offered in our time. Um, of course, this is really cool, too. Uh, you know, when, when you begin to have these... these um, 
informational handles on things, it doesn't make much sense to hold them to yourselves any longer. If, if anything, the, uh, the logic of our age teaches us that the power of information is probably best realized by opening it up and sharing it, or at least, you know, that is personally what I believe. And um, the neat thing about the context that we're getting into is that when everything has a handle, you grab it for yourself, but you also share it outwards again. You also take it and you throw it to your friends and you throw it out into the world as an open proposition. You begin to share your knowledge. And um, yes, you know, you do lose the sense of urban savoir-faire, but maybe you gain something that's even better. Maybe you gain... Uh, if our research about the, the oncoming uh, age cohort uh, holds up, um, the ability to contribute to the world uh, is an extraordinarily strong motivation for them. So maybe by sharing your information, by throwing it back out there, by curating and then re-releasing things, uh, packages of urban experience, um, you're contributing to the world in a really important, rich, and meaningful way. At least I, I tend to believe so. Um, you know, this is, this is also the case that <clears throat> we've built our societies around the idea that uh, knowledge does eventually leave the world. And what I think we're building in our networked condition, in our, in our global mnemotechnic system, is uh, an urban environment in which things no longer expire. They no longer leave the world in quite the same way. They persist over time, at least as long as there is a network there to catch information and along, as long as there's a network for this information to kind of bounce and travel within. Um, facts remain. And again, 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 a good side and a bad side. The good side is that history has depth, has meaning. You can begin to interrogate place as, as to all of the things that have ever happened there. So I can look at, you know, instead of needing to be told that this building is where, you know, ABBA won the Eurovision Song Contest that set them off on their route to fame, I look at the building and I'm offered that in, you know, currently, the, the current paradigm would be I'm offered that in an augmented reality overlay, you know, that I hold my personal device up and I have a little, you know, I, I, I look at it on the screen and there's a little overlay that says, well, this is you know, the Brighton Dome, and this is where these things happened, and this is the history of the place. Um, I'm not so interested about the particular affordances of the interface through which we're offered this stuff. All I know is that history will persist and be accessible in a way that it hasn't been before. But I also do mean personal histories. And an example of that is... Um, it's, it's a rather charged subject at the moment, I'm aware here, because there's this current case about these, these two kids, these 12- and 10-year-old kids who committed these horrible, brutal crimes, right? Um, brutal assaults. Something that um, we have guaranteed in our societies throughout history is that when juveniles commit offenses of that nature, when they become adults, their records are expunged. You know, for better or for worse, they're able to operate in the world with a fresh slate. They're able to take up new identities. That is, in fact, one of the reasons why big cities exist. One of the things that big cities have always offered people is the chance to start over. If you've developed a bad reputation, an unsavory reputation in the place where you came from, if you've run into trouble in your small town or your village, you run away to the big city and you start over fresh. You start with a clean sheet of paper and you're able to reinvent yourself. And, you know, most of the pop cultural movements that are so near and dear to my heart actually have that kind of reinvention of the self at their core. Well, guess what? When information goes from expiring to persistent, you're not able to do that nearly so, so easily. The records stay with you. They're sticky. They stick to your name. They stick to your identity. You know, and at least as we've got it currently set up, it's really, really hard to get away from that stuff.
it's really, really hard to construct a new identity that doesn't have tendrils and traces of all of the other identities you've had in your life attached to it. It's really, really hard to do what Irving Goffman talks about in 1958 in the presentation of self in everyday life, which is to wear different masks that face the different communities and the facets of our life. Those things, our technologies tend to laminate those things together, and they tend to force us to deal with the world through one true name. That's not always the way that we want to do things, and people go to extraordinary measures to be able to present different facets of their identity autonomously and independently of one another. But our network technologies tend to make that kind of difficult. Um, I'm not going to talk so much about this because I think for this crowd it's kind of obvious. Things that, that have been deferred, things that have taken uh, extraordinary investments of time and energy and effort. Um, when you've got something equivalent to a Google search box um, that you can describe a condition in and have that delivered to you, um, it, you know, things get easy. Things get something closer to real time. But what this also means is that you can get um, reads on real-time conditions served back to you. So this means things like traffic like weather, like air quality conditions, conditions that um, in years past would have taken months to gather and to parse and to represent and then to serve back out to the public, now flow back to you in something really close to real time. And, and what all that does is enhance its actionability. It means that when you are in place or about to be in a place, you can know exactly what's going on there and all of the registers that are significant and important to you. And you can have that inform your decision about whether you want to be there or be somewhere else, whether you want to do that or do something else, whether you want to eat at this place or that place, see this film or that film. Whatever it is that you can think of doing in a city, you can now make the choice based on relatively fresh, relatively accurate real-time information. We move um, from having to be passive recipients of urban experience into being co-creators of place. If all of the physical surroundings are dynamic and if they respond at least uh, to our proximity, our presence, if everything that we see around us has been opened up and turned into some kind of open-ended condition that responds to data that's being served to it, then everything we do has a consequence, begins to set up the conditions under which other people experience the city um, in ways that are more practical and relevant than might be the case now. This has, of course, always been the case. But, of course, we're talking now about a transition from deferred to real time. We're talking about the things that you do know having consequences for other people around you in some very real ways. Um, and one of the simplest ways is just surely being present at a place and having that presence accounted for. There's a... a Unfortunately, the, the project itself is much more interesting than the application. There is an application uh, called CitySense, which uh, right now is just a dynamic map of where people are in the city of San Francisco. And it's able to show that you know, at a given time, at a given intersection, there will be you know, a cluster of red dots around that intersection. There will be a little legend that says, you know, right now the corner of 14th and Church is 50% above normal. There's more people now you know, at that intersection um, than there would be ordinarily on a Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. Right? And if there's one thing that we know about cities, um, you know, I think uh, Elias uh, Kennedy says it best in Crowds and Power, a crowd likes a crowd. So just the fact of people being in a place and being visibly in a place is probably enough to get other people to go there. And that is probably the simplest manifestation I can think of 
of the transition from passive to interactive. Um, obviously, this ramifies. It gets much deeper. But that is a near-term, real-world example. We move from wayfinding to way showing. This is, this is fascinating. Um, historically, cities have been designed to account for the fact that you need to find your way around them. And in 1961, in the image of the city, Kevin Lynch talks about the, the ways in which cities can be designed to help you orient yourself, to locate yourself, to figure out, you know, neighborhoods are constructed with clear edges and nodes. Uh, pathways are, are, are designed clearly. And, of course, there's things like signage and um, maps that are placed in the public space to help you find your way around cities. There is a, a very long, deep, rich tradition of wayfinding. But what if all of that becomes something much more like the condition of a, a sat-nav unit in a car? What if you've got a mobile device or some kind of interface to the world that basically says, if you want to get from point A to point B, here are step-by-step -step directions how to do that. Walk 500 meters this way. Turn sharp left. Go up these stairs. Take this subway car if you want to get out at this exit to come out at this side of this intersection. You're beginning to show the way around the world rather than having to find the way around yourself. Um, a boon in places, trust me, it's a boon, in places like Tokyo, which are such incredibly thorny compactions of space and where the address scheme that they use to express location is uh, not necessarily the, the easiest to parse. Um, it is an absolute boon if you're a stranger in a place. You've never been there before. You need to, to have some kind of intercession and, and, and assistance in finding a way around. But Marshall McLuhan says something that's really profound and true, and which I, I tend to quote at every available opportunity. He said, so, he said that every extension is also an amputation. So when you grow up from a really early age being shown the way to everything, and, and ultimately when you do have this, this ubiquitous uh, computational and representational presence in everyday life. Maybe it's almost like, um, you know, the example I always come to in my mind is, is that video of uh, Billie Jean where, the, you know, the, the tiles of the street light up. Maybe literally, you know, the street in front of you lights up and you just follow that path through the world to your destination. Um, when you grow up from a very early age, having the way shown to you, it's, maybe it's not even way showing anymore. Maybe it's just weighing. And that's very elegant and very beautiful, but also very disempowering. Because, you know, all networks fail. All technologies fail. And what happens when that entire infrastructure of representation about place goes away, even intermittently? What do you do then if that's the only thing you've ever known? What do you do then when every cue that helps you locate yourself in space and time and place goes away? This is rich enough in that it should probably be a talk in and of itself. Uh, we begin to move from a context in which things are discrete, unitary objects into being able to see them as services. And the best example I can think of is, is uh, City Car Share or similar programs or Zipcar or one of these services where you can like lease cars on a short-term basis. But it also applies to, to the local um, bicycling, network bicycle schemes like B-Thing and uh, uh, schemes of that nature. Um, in 1965, if I wanted to get to work and I lived in the suburbs, I had a car, and that car sat in my driveway, and in the morning I got up and I drove that car to work. And um, I may have driven an hour each way, and maybe I had an hour of errands in the evening. So, you know, it's being, that car is being used three hours of every day. And for the rest of the time, for the other 21 hours of the day, it sits in a parking lot. And imagine all of the material and all of the wealth and all of the energy that went into making enough cars to serve people like that. 
and and you have the the ecosystem that you have now, um, with all of its obvious limitations and and sort of scary implications. But when that car becomes networked, um, and when it's able to locate itself, you can begin to lease access to it on an hourly basis, and do so that's efficient uh, in a way over over an urban landscape. And so the one object, the vehicle. You have to think of it as a service now. It begins to, its edges begin to blur. It's not so much a product in space and time, but a, a, a proposition. A proposition that's accessible by multiple people, different rates, different times. Um, eight or 10 or 12 people can use that car during the, those 21 hours of the day that it would have sat vacant and unused otherwise. So you can turn this really painfully underutilized resource into something that's, that's utilized at something close to its optimal peak utilization. Things get, you know, if you're, if you're concerned about environmental efficiency, things obviously get much more environmentally efficient, but they also get much more socially interesting. And so I'm really, really excited by all of the implications that happen when um, every previously discrete object in the world has its network location and represents something of its current condition, location, status to the world through the network. Um, I'm really, really encouraged by what happens when things become more servicey, more service-like, more open-ended. Um, it kind of means capitalism has to change, though. Um, and one of the consequences of that is that you have to think about things instead of being a vehicle. This is now more like an abstract quantity of mobility. Um, I think you know it's it's all well and good that we're currently re-engineering the car to become electric or hydrogen powered or something like that, but that's ultimately kind of a 20th century solution to things. You know why not think if we have this ability to do like way showing and maybe even weighing, and if we have these sort of network shared services you know that that we we think of now as cars and bicycles, when you're plotting a route through space. Don't think of it as having to do with any one or another mode of, of travel. Think of it instead as a proposition that's sewn together from available bicycles, available public transit, maybe even available shared car services. You have to start to tra- plot routes through space that are, that are something more like an abstract notion of mobility from one place to another. And this really begins to etch away at the idea of what it means to own something. Um, because maybe I don't need to own something to make use of it. And the, the best current example I have is Spotify. It's actually a music service that, um, it, you know, it, it has ambitions to have all of music on their service and on their servers. And I don't have to have local copies of those songs to listen to them. I just need to set up a playlist on Spotify. It lives somewhere else. I have access to it. You know, in the parlance of our times, it lives in the cloud. And I don't need to worry about that. Um, extend this logic to space and to objects in space, and things begin to get really interesting. Maybe I don't need to own things locally to make maximum use out of them. Maybe I don't express my personality through a car anymore and through ownership of that car because I get everything I need from that car out of a shared service and a mobility system. Maybe the set of potentials and opportunities that are available to me begin to look a lot more open-ended and fuzzy than this kind of very 20th century paradigm of, oh, yes, I buy something and I use it. You know, it's, it's spent you know, millennia as oil in the ground. It's turned into an object that I use and buy for a year, and then I throw it away, and it sits in a landfill for the next 17,000 years. Maybe things get a lot closer to peak optimization and use. 
changes utterly the conditions of corporate late-stage capitalism. It changes utterly the social circumstances of our lives. It brings us all into contact with entirely different networks of people than we might have had access to before or had available to us. It changes things radically. And um, I think I would go so far as to say that this transition to a non-rivalrous, open-ended economy... I think our current global economic downturn, I mean, this is just a guess and a supposition, but I think what we're feeling is the first premonitory shocks of a more general recognition that we're moving out of consumerism and more towards something else that, that isn't quite aborned yet, but is out there in the network condition. I think that, that some people already suspect that fairly strongly, and I think it's beginning to etch away at the assumptions that undergird our economy. Uh, this is different. This is just this is just me indulging myself. Uh, a shelling place. Um, if I told this audience that I'm going to be in New York at noon tomorrow and I'll meet you there, um, I'll meet you at noon tomorrow in New York City. Where are you going to meet me? If you have no more information than that, anybody have? Raise your hand if you have an idea of where I'm going to meet you. Times Square. Times Square. Anybody else? Over there. That's what I'm looking for. Thank you. Yeah. Um, traditionally, the clock in Grand Central has been what's called a shelling point. It's been a node of unconscious coordination. Um, we have traditionally needed artifacts and landmarks like that to make sense of urban place. Um, and most cities, most urban places have one of these things. You know, it's, uh, in Tokyo, it's, it's the, the statue of the dog in Hachiko Square and Shibuya Station. Um, I don't know what it is in London. What is it in London? Say again? Under the clock at Waterloo. Okay. Most cities have one of these things because this is how, in the absence of effective communication between people, you make appointments. Um, you, you, have to, you have to arrange things ahead of time. And uh, the plurality of such things ultimately converge on a couple of high-visibility destinations, which is why these artifacts kind of bubble up from the bottom and why there are such things as shelling points. Obviously, when everything is networked, though, you don't need that anymore. Then you get um, soft appointments. You get shoaling activity. You get people saying, you know, on Foursquare, you know, I'm, I'm at the magician on Rivington Street. And that functions as an attractor around which people shoal. Social activity changes. Social activity begins to be much less about specific times and points and places and much more about converging on some kind of vector where people have, have either are, have expressed their presence or have an expressed an intention, an intention to be. We get something that looks actually a lot more like the flocking of birds or the shoaling of fish. And if you're a student of cities, um, this is the kind of thing that uh, is premonitory of a great many other changes. It means that the sorts of opportunities that you have to present people with, the ways that you structure and, and, and orient your proposition to people changes. But it also means that space changes. And I think ultimately we begin to see a transition from everything that we've understood as community into a much more conscious social network. And... This is something that I think is wonderful, but it also has real, deep, significant potential challenges. Um, Neighborhoods subsist on a very delicate balance of knowledge about the other people around you. 
this is something that that Goffman calls the nod line. It's sort of a nod. A nod line is is like minimal acquaintance of somebody. You recognize them. You know them just well enough to kind of nod at them in the morning and maybe say a couple of phatic words. Oh, nice day we're having. But you don't know anything else about them. And it turns out that's kind of an optimum for the cohesion of of a neighborhood or small social unit. It turns out that you don't want to know too much about the other people around you. A friend of mine likes to tell a story about how he broke his building in New York. Um, He lived in in something like a six-unit condo in Brooklyn. And um, and and everybody there in the building kind of you know got along and liked each other and, and was really really comfortable and they said hey why don't we do like a discussion board or a bulletin board system for the building, so uh, he designed one he designed this this sort of web you know this this web front end on on the social experience of the building. And within just a couple of months, the building was broken. You know, the turnover rate in those condos was unbelievable. You know, it's like like four of the six units were on the market within just a couple of months. And the reason was that the amount of information available about the other people around them had gone through and, and crossed a threshold. It turns out you don't want to know that your neighborhood is a Scientologist or a Tory or, you know, whatever. You, you don't want to know these things about your, your neighbors. Cohesion requires a, a, a dissembling about them. It requires a sense of plausible deniability that allows us to get along with each other. When things are too explicit, when things are too available, too persistent, when the multiple selves that we present to the world are laminated into a single one and anchored to space, some kinds of situations get impossible. Some kinds of situations become untenable. One of those situations may be neighborhood as we've traditionally constructed it. So, you know, I'm concerned about this. I'm also concerned that, um, you know, when you have uh, 120 friends on Facebook or whatever the average is, most of those friends resemble you in some strong way. The, this is how social networking software as it currently exists tends to underlie the, connect, the, the creation of connections. Yes, it's, it's sort of a connectionist philosophy uh, uh, underlying the social network, but you tend to only associate by affinity, by choice, That's not the way cities work. The prospect of a city is precisely the normal, ordinary, daily, cheek-by-jowl confrontation with the other, with the different, with the separate. And everything interesting happens at the interface between two different things, between two different conditions. Whether, you know, we're talking about ethnicity or class or race or gender or income level, you know, however you want to construct these things. Everything interesting about cities happens at the interface between two tense, discrete, divergent conditions. Now, when I say interesting, you know, it's obvious that I also mean uncomfortable and sad and heartbreaking and disturbing and threatening. But I also mean interesting in all of its positive senses. And something that I've watched happen to my hometown, New York City, over the last couple of years is an increasing homogenization that doesn't yet have anything to do with the homogenization of social networking. But when you begin to superimpose the logic of social network space onto physical space, and when you would begin simultaneously to assault the foundations of neighborhood, when places become more self-similar as opposed to in- enforcing on a daily basis the encounter with the other, I don't know what happens, but I have a sneaking suspicion it looks a lot like the suburbs. It looks like a lot like the suburbs in all of its manifestations. And guess what? I moved to the city to get away from the suburbs. I didn't suspect that the suburbs were going to catch up with me. So what I'm asking for is a design of interfaces to these conditions 
that preserves and maintains, not artificially and not out of sentimentality and certainly not out of any heavy historical responsibility, but for purely functional reasons, maintains some of the things that have constituted human experience in urban spaces in time immemorial. We should preserve those things because they work. We should design to them because they have been arrived at after an awful lot of trial and error. And they've been arrived at in culture after culture, place after place. They exist and they persist because they function. And if in our design of network cities, we overwrite that or overrun that, I think we're asking for a lot of trouble. But I don't want to end on that note. I want to end on a much more positive note because I really do think that we have an extraordinarily, an an epochal opportunity here. We have an opportunity to move from willy-nilly consumers of urban space and experience into constituents of it. And I mean that in every deep political sense, co-creators and equal constituents of the experiences that we partake of and the experiences that everybody else partakes of. I think that we have the opportunity with networked urbanism to invent a whole new way of being human on this planet and a whole new way of experiencing the diversity and the complexity of urban space to underwrite the vitality, the richness, and the conviviality that potentially waits for us there, but only if we design it properly. And obviously that properly is going to be different from city to city, from country to country, from community to community, but it requires sensitivity, delicacy, and tact. And circling way back around, if there's any one thing that my experience teaches me is not bloody likely to come out of the technology sector, it's precisely that sensitivity, intelligence, and tact. Where do we go from here? I don't know. I really don't. I'm excited by it. I'm scared by it. I think in the end, a lot of it's going to be up to us and people who look like us because we're going to be the ones that are interacting with the technical systems that wind up producing the effects. The, the, uh, everything deep in the architecture that begins to condition potential and experience you know, an increasing amount of that is going to be technical and internet technical in ways that people in this room will be very comfortable with and will recognize implicitly and immediately. So the power and the grandeur, in a lot of senses, really is with people like you and me. I hope that we understand the immensity of the challenge before us. I hope that we really appreciate the power that's now in our hands. And I would encourage us to take that power and go out and make great, profound enriching urban experiences happen for us and for everybody else on the planet. Thank you very much. I've really appreciated being here, and I hope you've enjoyed the talk. Wow, you guys are you guys are super generous. That's like that's like thirty seconds longer than I ever get applause for. I, I, I think um, I think we have time. I hope we have time for for a couple of questions because questions are the best part. One, two, can we go? To four. four ah, four minutes. Okay. Uh, I hope there are questions because I like Q and A the best out of anything that I do in presenting. So so, ask if there are any. Hello. Yes. Howdy. Um, is um, consumerism. Uh, the, the consumer society as we have now is that um, that's going to change to a service-based society but is privacy going to be the binding factor the tipping point the problem that people are not going to own a product and go to to use a service for a proposition because if I have a car that's my car I can go anywhere 
It doesn't have an RFID tag yet. I can go out of my city, go to Amsterdam, go to London. I'm, I won't get logged yet, except in the parts where they want to speed trap me. Yeah. But if I use a service, I'm going to be logged everywhere because I'm from the Netherlands. We have the OV chip car now. That is a really big controversy. They have an RFID chip. It's all privacy problems right now because they've got a lot of investment into it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to stop you there just because we have such brief time yeah, for questions. Sure. Please forgive me. I think, I think that the gist of the question is clear. Exactly. Um, thank you. It's, it's an important question. It's the right question. Um, what happens to privacy under, under the network conditions that we're discussing? And I think pretty obviously, uh, unless something is explicitly done to preserve it, uh, the momentum in the paradigms that, that we've set up so far is for privacy to begin to be eroded. Um, I think that certainly in the systems I design, I try to design them such that people who want to use them always have some kind of guarantee of, of um, actually perfect privacy, of having any trace of their use of the system disappear immediately and having that uh, utterly effaced from history. Um, my bosses and the governments that they write contracts with uh, aren't always comfortable with that so, uh, and, and may in fact um, take fairly significant steps to prevent systems from being deployed that actually do act to enhance uh, personal autonomy and privacy. Uh, I'm not religious about these things. I think these are always trade-offs, and I think that sometimes you give up privacy, and in return for that privacy, if in fact you're offered something of great worth and value, that that may be a deal that's worth taking. I'm not quite as hardcore about this as a lot of people, but I do, in the systems I design, um, I, I always believe there should be at least the option for people to you know, opt out of, of that kind of visibility and, and representation to the system entirely. Um, when you do opt out, um, there are penalties associated with that unavoidably. It's very, very hard to design network systems that um, deliver to you services that don't require some account, at least of your physical presence. Um, but I think through fairly elaborate dodges of, of tokenization, you can get just about everything you need to from, from an urban information network um, without necessarily giving up anything decisive about yourself. And, and it's, it's a deep and rich design challenge, and it's something I've been spending a lot of time thinking about lately. Um, I, I don't think privacy is nearly as important or as foremost in the minds of the vendors of technical systems as it should be. I think the developers are mostly kind of EFF libertarian-ish, you know, in that direction. And, and I'm happy and comfortable with that because I think that they're doing a lot of hard work to preserve our autonomy and freedom, whether or not we personally are quite that threatened by privacy as they are. Um, but again, you know, the, the grandeur is at the governmental and corporate level, and I think we need to be working a lot harder to ensure that the systems that get in place and that we're exposed to, uh, you know, like Oyster, like Octopus, like T-Money, like these things have protections for privacy built into them. And if they do not, then we should call attention to that and urge people not to use them. I think we probably have time for one more question. Um, I just had a, um, a couple of questions. It, it, it feels like um, the first one was, um, do I want to search? So what I mean by that is uh, a lot of the um, uh, beautifulness about cities is about discovering the things yourself, um, about going out and being the browser. Um, and it feels like the functional need would be the search ability to be able to search the data. But that ability to discover is what be being in a city is about. Um, uh, second question. Can I, can I speak? Oh, right, sorry. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I personally agree with you about 
22,000%. Um, I'm, I'm, I have good friends who have designed services that attempt to accelerate serendipity, um, but I'm not entirely, as much as I love those friends who are sitting in the audience right now, um, I'm not always entirely convinced by attempts to accelerate serendipity. And I, I would rather accept some measure of disappointment and difficulty as the price of getting to discover things for myself via happenstance. Most of the time. There are other times when I am on some kind of time or other pressure in which that functionality is not merely useful and, and, and congenial to me, but might even be vital. And so what I would suggest is that um, ultimately, at least in, you know, in, in the present, that we exploit um, the, the very partial nature of these network services and we exploit the fact that, that you know, not using them is as simple as just turning your phone off or leaving it in your pocket. I mean, we, we still do have that choice, and I would, I would uh, suggest that we make use of it if, if we're ever feeling the need to just kind of wander and experience things rawly. And it's certainly true that, you know, when I get to a new city for the first time, um, my, my kind of immediate panic reaction is to get out my phone and call up a map and try and locate myself. And if I'm wise enough to take five or six breaths before I think to do that, and I just walk out from the train station or, or you know, wherever I've been left off, and I start to get the texture and the grain of the sense through my senses, of the place through my senses, I'm apt to have a much different and, and still, I think, more vital and more interesting experience. Not always the most efficient one, but a more vital and a more interesting one. So that would, I hope, satisfy your first question. And, and I think we probably have about 32 seconds left, so kick it. Uh, second one is just about, do I want uh, to not own? So what I mean by that, I, I completely agree with this um, uh, kind of, uh, ability to use things, but um, the point about the tangibility uh, of adding to my identity in some way. So if I can't own it in its physical form, or I can't own it that, what would be the tangible output to still make me believe that I've that I'm using it? Yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know, and I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think I think that that entire question might be rooted in some assumptions about things which are, are very much of our era and, and of the past. You'll forgive me for saying so. I think that um, if we design things properly, the persistence and, and the latency, you know, the, 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 what you're looking for will be ambiently available, right? So you don't need to have some kind of token that you're still logged into the service or, or subscribed to the service or that it's still a part of your portfolio. Um, you might need to have some kind of notification when those things disappear from your portfolio. But um, I can't answer that yet. My suspicion is that you know, I'm always wary of kind of situating things in the proximate future and saying, okay, well, when we've designed the perfect ever ultimate Evernet and you're walking down the street, you can grab things out of the air. Um, I'm wary of that, but I would also say that, that if anything like I'm talking about actually does come to pass, then uh, your concern about that will cease to exist. You just won't be worried about it. Why, you know, as, as personally somebody for whom the minimalist aesthetic is really important, um, I look forward to most things going away and most tokens of things going away and just kind of being able to live in a world where um, the few moments that are physically represented are represented with great beauty and attention to detail. Uh, so, you know, personally, I, I, I look forward to a day where most of that cruft and clutter just kind of evaporates. Um, I think that's probably all the questions we have time for. So I'd just like to thank you again for being such a generous audience. And, and uh, it's wonderful to be here in Brighton. Thanks so much.